The concept of pride has developed dramatically in the five decades since its inception. For better or worse, what started as a series of spontaneous protests on the dirty streets of New York is now a bona fide all-singing, all-dancing party seen in cities across the world. But how did we get here and what is pride all about? If you're lost, never fear. Over the next half an hour, I'll be taking you on a crash course through the history of Pride, how it all began and why it matters, maybe even now more than ever. For our first stop, we're heading back to the summer of 69 in New York City. I got my first real six string, it at the f- okay, less like that, more a little something like this. The first thing you need to know about the 60s in America is the fact that as a country, it was a tinderbox just waiting to explode. Good morning, Vietnam! I have directed the continued and increased close surveillance of Cuba. President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. It was a decade defined by a burgeoning civil rights movement. I have a dream. A war being fought away in Vietnam that was equally as unpopular at home. Many Americans have lost confidence in what their government has told them about our policy. And a countercultural movement with all the sex, drugs and rock and roll that came along with it. So what was Stonewall? Well, the Stonewall Inn was a notorious gay bar in the Greenwich Village area of NYC. In 1969, consensual sexual relations between men or between women were illegal in every U.S. state except Illinois. Gay people could not work for the federal government or the military, and coming out would deny you a license in many professions, including law and medicine. And there was no refuge for them in bars or nightclubs. The local liquor laws in New York City were interpreted in a way that meant serving alcohol to gays and lesbians could close down any licensed premises because that made the venue disorderly. Dancing with someone from the same sex could be interpreted as a lewd offence. A crackdown on the city's gay bars began in the early 1960s. The Mafia then stepped in to run many of them, charging more for watered-down drinks and paying off the authorities. In essence, queer people were being forced to live their lives in secret for the most part. But the Stonewall Inn, a mafia-run establishment on the west side of Lower Manhattan, was a safe haven for many. So, when the NYPD decided to raid the popular hangout in the early hours of the morning on June 28th, the patrons of the Stonewall Inn had had enough. Although it's still debated to this day who threw the first metaphorical stone that night, What is clear is that the city erupted into violent protests that lasted for the next six days. And though the Stonewall Uprising didn't start the gay rights movement, it was a galvanising force for LGBTQ plus political activism, and it marked a major turning point in the United States and around the world. It led to the formation of numerous gay rights organisations, and on the one-year anniversary of the riots on June 28, 1970, Thousands of people marched on the streets of Manhattan from the Stonewall Inn to Central Park 
in what was then called Christopher Street Liberation Day, or America's first gay pride parade. The parade's official chant was, Say it loud, gay is proud. Alright, enough about what the Americans were up to. What about closer to home? There are only half a dozen countries in the world in which it is a crime, but for some reason Britain is one of them. So what's it like then to be a male homosexual in Britain today whose only choice is between a lifetime of complete sexual abstinence or being a criminal? To understand how Pride developed in the UK, I spoke to those who were there at the beginning, in the Gay Liberation Front. The GLF was formed in 1970 in direct response to the Stonewall Riots, with the hopes to champion revolutionary queer politics on this side of the Atlantic. Uh, Pride, of course, was a big demonstration to begin with. Former GLF member, artist, performer and activist Stuart Feather recalls the early days of Pride in London. It was the second time that GLF had held a march uh, to central London rather than a specific location for uh, protest. Uh, the, the first time was in uh, 1971 for the Age of Protest demonstration from Hyde Park to Trafalgar Square. And, of course, the 1972 demonstration uh, started off in Trafalgar Square and ended up in Hyde Park. Uh, where we had a party in the park afterwards under the noses of the police who quickly disappeared when we started snogging each other in front of them. was um, a great sort of exciting event and not quite so heavily policed as the demonstration the year before was. But still there were so many police on either side of us that um, it was kind of difficult to see the public or for them to see us for that matter. It was noisy, it was raucous, it was um, a very happy occasion and we had a lot of fun on it and, uh, and afterwards and definitely made our point. Stewart would argue that all history is personal. He authored a political memoir entitled Blowing the Lid, Gay Liberation, Sexual Revolution and Radical Queens. He's the first participant of the GLF to write a history of the lesbians and gay men who joined the gay liberation movement and through a process of coming out and radicalisation initiated a campaign that permanently changed the face of the UK. There had been other demonstrations through that uh, first Pride Week as well because they had, for instance, GLF were invited to join the trade union protest outside the American Embassy against the war in Vietnam, which was also taking place in Pride Week. And it was the Boilermakers who were on duty, on picket duty that day, that we, uh, the Notting Hill communards, gay communards, decided to go demonstrate uh, and we went down to Grosvenor Square and we couldn't find the Boilermakers at all, which was a shame really. We were looking forward to meeting them, but I think they saw us coming 
and disappeared. Because we'd all we were all in drag, uh, and all made up, and uh, we arrived at the demonstration. There was nobody there, and we didn't know quite what to do. And then we heard this uh, American dance band in the square itself. So we went through the gardens into the square where was the, there was a kind of paved area, and there was this American college band playing all these. Uh, show tunes and uh, all around the edges were all the sort of people sort of on their lunch breaks from the offices round about lots of typists and so on and secretaries and so anyway it, it was great and so I think we must have already been a bit stoned so we said well let's have a dance so we all started dancing together and then we got the women up as well and we had a really great little party going on but it kind of upset the american uh, uh, conductor particularly of the orchestra so they packed it in to stop us uh, dancing anymore so we went off to piccadilly by way of um, bond street and we picked up quite a number of uh, young gay men who were out trolling and we ended up in Piccadilly Circus and we did a sort of demonstration outside the men's loo which was a notorious loo in Piccadilly Circus calling for them to come out and join us well, of course they weren't the type they were absolutely terrified of what was going on poor things <laughs> and, uh, the, and then the police arrived and they chased us round the concourse and we sort of rushed up the steps into Lower Regent Street and ran down Lower Regent Street and disappeared into the uh, the ICA art centre there uh, where there was a, a display of Russian revolutionary art, which was marvellous. It just so <laughs> that was very good. And then we went off to Trafalgar Square, got up on the plinth and photographers arrived and so we sort of carried on on top of the plinth for a while and then and then two policemen arrived and asked us what we were doing and we explained what we were doing and they said where are you going next and we said well we thought we'd go to Hyde Park so uh, they said okay we'll accompany you and they called up another half a dozen policemen I think well, oh, they made up a bunch of half a dozen. They called four more or something like that. And uh, and they did. They accompanied us all the way to Hyde Park on our own little sort of demonstration. So um, that, that was quite funny. And it, well, it certainly made our day anyway. Alongside Stuart in the beginning was Andrew Lumsden, who joined the GLF in 1970. He was a journalist at The Times in Fleet Street. The first demonstration for the GLF was held in Highbury Fields on the 27th of November that year. Andrew read about it and thought, I've got to get down there, and joined the GLF the following Wednesday. He suggested that the country needed a queer newspaper and urged it be called Gay News. It became the first legal LGBTQ paper since the partial decriminalisation of homosexuality in 1967. I asked him what he remembers about that very first Pride. Part of its purpose, they declared, was to be a carnival, to be out there looking happy and encouraged and encouraging 
but part of it also was a deliberate political program of scrap the law that says men can have no sexual relations of the slightest sort below the age of 21, and even then, only in special circumstances. So it was a mixture of a party and politics. It's been half a century now since the pioneers of Pride first took to the streets, and it's safe to say for those who were there at the start, the celebrations held in their current form do not go far enough to emulate their original goals. The political elements of Pride have been diluted over time, an opinion which both Stuart and Andrew believe has not been heard by the organisers of Pride in London. They don't follow through as many of us would wish what that means. So they declare an annual slogan, which is usually anemic, anodyne, pointless, at moments when we have what has gone on in Chechnya. We have what has gone on, is going on now in Poland, in Hungary, in obviously lots of other parts of the world. And the slogan ever, every year should be a political slogan because it was in 1972. And we started it uh, within the Gay Liberation Front. So we ought to get a better hearing when we say, this is wrong, it's missing. It has to have a political slogan, and it must lose all its militarism. It is intolerable to those of us who were there in 1972 that anything resembling a military outfit, whether it's clothing or a float, appears in the London Pride. It is insufferable, and that is so easily remedied. You just stop it. At the time of these interviews, I contacted Pride in London for comment. They did not respond. Let's get back in time from the present again to a bizarre time for all of us. 2020, when the world came to a standstill. China has more than 200 confirmed cases of coronavirus, it's called. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. The 2020 Isle of Man TT is cancelled. The Isle of Man has its first confirmed case of coronavirus. Back in August of that year, once lockdown restrictions had been eased, I jumped on a train to London to speak to those who believed the absence of mainstream commercialised pride that year might actually have been a positive development. Welcome on board this Avanti West Coast service to London Euston, calling at... Dan Glass is an award-winning activist who you may remember for that one time he superglued himself to then Prime Minister Gordon Brown in an act of environmental protest. He's also the author of a groundbreaking book entitled United Queerdom, which looks at the history of the LGBTQ plus rights movement in the UK, from the legends of the Gay Liberation Front to the queers of tomorrow. He told me pride is always a protest as well as a celebration, and we could all do well to learn from those who came before us. Pride in London, it's really important to distinguish between Pride in London Corporation and Pride, because Pride in London Corporation is a specific company which has the contract. And in 2004, they um, changed it from a protest to a parade, instantly depoliticizing it. And I think the spirit of Pride is very much alive. It's Pride in London Corporation, who are just a corporation with a contract that we have to challenge. 
the founders of Pride are like tokenized and paid lip service to. And it's in a way, I think what, you know, the silver lining of, of Corona is that Pride in London Corporation didn't happen this year. But we had the most incredible recreation of the first Pride with the, some of the living legends who were still with us who founded it. And it was incredible. And, you know, Ted Brown was saying how, you know, we had the GLF, we had Black Lives Matter, Black Trans Lives Matter. And he said, oh, this reminds me of what it was just like in the 60s. And so, yeah, it was incredible to be able to, to do that because, you know, one, one of the many things I learned from the GLF is that the struggle is long, you know, that their aim, their initial aim and continuing aim isn't queer freedom for all, it's absolute freedom for all. And so they see all injustices as connected, race, homophobia, misogyny, ability, environmental issues, anti-racism, etc. So they're prolific in their, in their vision and um, remind us that we've still got a lot of work to do. I guess separate to Pride then as an organisation, um, having that separate alternative Pride this year, do you feel like that was more authentic then in a way? More authentic, more genuine, more um, political. You know, I'm a big fan of Black Pride because they don't shy away from politics. They're not, they, they refuse a lot of corporate sponsorship because it, you know, it contradicts a lot of the issues that they stand for. You know, that you're not going to accept money and sponsorship from financial institutions which are complicit in human rights violations, in detention centres, etc. And, you know, Pride in London Corporation don't really care too much about that. They're just driven by pinkwashing, by the pink pound. So for me, in a, you know, similar to Black Pride, the Gay Liberation Fund, who were born out of the Black Power and Women's Liberation Movement, really stand for that. In your opinion, does that mainstream Pride shy too much away from the politics then? Completely, because it's, um, you know, if they have to acknowledge the politics, they have to change the whole framing of it all. And it can, you know, it contravenes what the pride was initially set out for. So they don't want to take responsibility because then the whole thing will collapse. You know, there's been some examples like allowing UKIP on pride, allowing BAE systems on pride, pushing the trade unions to the back and LGBT disability, LGBT migrant, LGBT homeless organisations being pushed to the back when austerity-inducing, um, tax-avoiding companies like Barclays are allowed to march to the front, which are part of the problem with LGBT homelessness, etc. I think a lot of people are sick and tired of it. A lot of people don't go to Pride anymore because they feel like they've just been t- tokenized. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's been really powerful to see, to see the GLF reform. Um, and, you know, GLF is much bigger than just Pride. And, that the originals, they remind me about that, that a lot, that it's not just pride. You know, uh, pride is obviously a significant aspect to it. And so, yeah, it's been really nice to see a shift and a, a deepening of consciousness and knowledge about the original roots. Does pride always have to be celebrated publicly or can it be marked by taking the time to learn queer history? I went to Platform Southwark, a contemporary art gallery in Waterloo, to find out. My name is Dan Delamotte and I'm the curator of GLF at 50, the Art of Protest exhibition. As the first ever exhibition to focus solely on the artistic output of the Gay Liberation Front, GLF at 50, the Art of Protest, had the living history of Pride on full display. 
What this exhibition has, has shown is that we can return to the radical origins of pride. Behind my shoulder, we have a pink triangle ornament. That was actually a uh, suggestion box in one of the GLF communes in Bounds Green in the early 1970s. And in that uh, ornament, somebody wrote on a piece of paper, we should have a pride march. And it was read out and everyone agreed on it. And that's why Pride in London was created and first happened in 1972. So I'm stood in a room right now with the very history of pride. I asked Dan whether events such as this might be a better representation of the Pride movement as a whole than the usual mainstream parades. There's something that uh, the activist Dan Glass says, which is that people today think that Pride was invented by Tesco's or Nando's. Uh, it's frustrating to see Barclays Bank having a rainbow logo or things like that when Pride was all about a different way of living and loving and equality and liberation. And so it's truly important to return to that and to remember that. Pride can be a celebration and a festival. Yes, that's really important. It's important to have fun, otherwise you burn out as an activist. But it's important to remember the radical roots of Pride. Pride was created after the Stonewall uprisings in New York. Two uh, students from the London School of Economics witnessed that. They brought that attitude and ethos back to London. They created the Gay Liberation Front, which in turn created Pride. So we need to remember the political significance of Pride. The motivations behind the first Pride March in London were complex. While the party element was certainly present, fundamentally it was a protest. A call for equality in the face of laws deemed to be unfair and discriminatory by those affected. Although the originators of Pride would argue that mainstream parades have moved too far away from their original goals, they would also tell you that some advancements have been made in the past 50 years that they would embrace. All of us who seen decades of activism. I don't mean being heroic for dozens of years, I simply mean who've seen it now and then or taken part now and then. I think we have a much wider understanding than we did 50 years ago. Because 50 years ago, we were really only addressing more or less our own audience in London because there, were, there was no social media. And so it was an overwhelmingly white, affair, not because we wished it to be, but it was. And uh, some were aware, but I for one was not aware in the way we can be today of the situation in overseas countries with links to here and people from those countries who sought to come here. And time and again, you can't be an activist and you can't show your face in any public arena because of what will be done to your people back home. And so I don't think any of us would shout as loudly now, come out, come out, come out, trying to embarrass people into being public. I don't think many of us would do that now. Come out where you can and how you can and only be an activist if it suits you. I do say always, my lovers have come to me through activism. Adored friends, lifelong friends have come to me through activism. I'm sure people can find them in other ways, but that's how I found a wonderful world. And so for those who can do it, activism is a wonderful world for oneself.
and not only for what one might do. You've been listening to the first instalment of a special series exploring the history of Pride here on Manx Radio. In the coming episodes, we'll be turning the focus to the Isle of Man, looking at the significant developments that have taken place here at home. Next week, we'll be hearing from some of the people who were here before homosexuality was decriminalised in 1992 and those who fought to achieve that change. It's very difficult as a child to, to reconcile and understand feelings when you've got no, no reference point that these feelings are actually something that is real, does exist. Other people feel it too. I had a brainwave idea of creating a concentration camp uniform. We wanted change and we wanted respect for our people. So until next time, I'm Siobhan Fletcher and I'll see you soon.